Our Father in heaven, we ask your forgiveness for when we don't esteem you as highly as we ought to, when we don't value Christ as highly as we ought to. Father, we pray that you would grant us to be able to sincerely sing a song like that, that we want to know you more, that we would trade everything we have in order to know you more, Lord. Indeed, that is true Christianity. It is counting Christ to be more worthy than all of that all that this world could give to us. It is to consider him like the man in the parable considered the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price worth giving up all in order to have. And Lord, when you call us to obey you, you call us to abandon ourselves, to abandon everything that this world is offering, and you call us to value you more highly than all of it, to, to leave all, to sell everything we have, and to follow you, because we have counted you worth giving up everything for. And Lord, we will spend eternity finding out just how valuable we are, and we will never fully come to a complete understanding of that, even spending all of eternity peering into your glory and your beauty and your holiness, Lord, uh, we look forward to spending for all, all time, all eternity, forever, getting to know you more. Lord, we thank you for saving us and drawing us to yourself, for giving us just a glimpse of who you are. And just a glimpse is enough to show us that you're worth leaving all for. And we pray you would show us even more this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. And we're looking at the first four verses, and I will read those for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. One day in the life and ministry of Jesus, a lawyer approached him to test him, and he asked him a question. He said, teacher, what is the great command, the great commandment in all the law? And Jesus responded to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And that's from Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And before I connect that exchange between the, the, the lawyer and Jesus to our passage, I just want to make mention of what is going on in Hebrews at this point. He has spent the first 12 chapters of this 
letter uh, speaking doctrine to us. And that's a similar pattern you will find throughout the New Testament, that especially in Paul, his letters, he will take some time to declare truth and doctrine, and then he will turn and begin to exhort believers about how they ought to live in the light of what they have just learned. And that is what is going on here. We have spent the first 12 chapters learning that Jesus is the perfect Savior, that as such he is someone who is worth living for, worth dying for, and that in fact nothing at all compares to him. And we've also been warned that to forsake Jesus would bring God's wrath down upon ourselves because Jesus is God's Son sent by God to be our only Savior. There is no other Savior. Therefore, if we would be saved, we must persevere in our faith in him. And now in chapter 13, the preacher is telling us what it looks like to live in the light of those truths. He turns to the question of, if someone has a persevering faith, What should their life look like? There are certain fruits that will be cultivated in the life of someone who is persistently following Jesus. And these are things that do not simply spring up automatically in our lives apart from our conscious effort. That is why when we read these four verses in chapter 13, these statements were in the form of commands. We are to purposefully seek to obey these commands. And these commands that we are looking at today are centered upon Christian love. Christian love. And this makes sense because what two greatest commandments sum up how the people of God are to live? We saw it in the exchange between Jesus and the lawyer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the preacher begins in verse 1 of this chapter by saying, Let love of the brethren continue. We are first of all called to brotherly love. Brotherly love. We are commanded here to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ. When you became a Christian, when you repented of your sins and you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior, God adopted you into his family. And God has a really big family. When you became a Christian, you literally gained a heavenly father. And you gained countless brothers and sisters in Christ. Many who have gone before you, Many who are alive today in the world around you now, and unless the Lord comes back, there will be many brothers and sisters to come after you. And they are your real brothers and sisters. We need to understand that the believers in the pews around you are not your figurative siblings. It is not just a manner of speaking. They are your real spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. You have all been united together with Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 11, the preacher said, For both he who sanctifies 
that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father, for which reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. And as we've read in our call to worship, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the defining marks of being a true Christian. In John, his gospel, chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we read John repeat very much the same thing in his first epistle. And this love, as we saw in 1 John 3, he says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This brotherly love that we're called to in the first verse of Hebrews 13 is not a love that consists merely of gooey, sentimental feelings toward one another. No, this love, this brotherly love, consists of an abiding commitment to one another in Christ that is demonstrated by actively sacrificing our time, our energy, our resources, and at times even our blood for one another. And again, this is not automatic for us. Because what does he say in verse 1? He says, let love of the brethren continue. Let it continue. That implies that they, they were loving each other this way. In fact, over in chapter 6, verse 10, we see the preacher encourage these believers that he's writing to, recognizing their love. He says, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So they were loving one another, but he commands them to let it continue, to let it continue. This kind of love, brotherly love, can only continue if you and I are being intentional about it. This is not a kind of love that you just fall into. You have to deny yourself in order to actively show this love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we are persevering in faith, our lives will be characterized more and more by this kind of sacrificial, selfless, brotherly love. And in verses 2 through 4, we're going to see a few different ways that this brotherly love expresses itself. Brotherly love is kind of the umbrella that hangs over verses 2 through 4, giving us examples of what it looks like to have brotherly love for one another. It's a summary. Brotherly love is a summary of the kinds of loving actions that we're going to see. And first of all, when we come to verse 2, we find that if our lives are being characterized by true brotherly love, we will find ourselves also being characterized by hospitable love. Hospitable love. Verse 2, he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels 
without knowing it. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. We saw that this is a real component of brotherly love. We saw that in 1 John 3 when he said, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So the preacher here, he's right in line with the Apostle John when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In the New Testament times, um, ministers of the gospel were often itinerant preachers because it, it wasn't like there was an already established church. They had to go and spread the gospel so that people could come to faith and form their own churches. So there was a lot of traveling that went on. And we see this in the life of Jesus. And you remember what Jesus said? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was dependent upon his disciples providing housing so that he could go and he could preach the gospel. And when he sent out his disciples two by two, it was expected that individuals who had embraced the gospel would provide lodging and food for them to support their gospel ministry. And we see this in the life of Paul. We see this in other gospel workers, these brothers who are dependent upon the hospitality of believers. The church was built on the back of the hospitality of believers, and it's still that way. And keeping in mind that verse 1 shows us that brotherly love is kind of the thing that uh, verses 2 through 4 are caught up in that gives us a hint that the preacher primarily has believers in mind here when he commands us to show hospitality. He's primarily thinking here of, of believers. It's not that he's saying don't show hospitality to unbelievers, but his focus here is on believers. And this is hard. It's hard to put yourself out so that you can welcome someone else in. And it's even more hard when you are demonstrating this kind of love to strangers because there's a whole element of risk that is being injected into the situation even if they are a professing believer. You don't know them. In Romans 12, 13, Paul calls us to this same kind of love. He says that we are to be, quote, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And this kind of love, hospitable love, it is a selfless love. You cannot be selfish and hospitable at the same time. And in this verse 2, the preacher gives us a reason for why we should be characterized by this hospitable love. He says, For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He may have in mind here examples of certain individuals in the Old Testament like Abraham or Lot or in the book of Judges, Gideon and the parents of Samson, how angelic visitors came to them and they showed hospitality to them. They cooked them a meal. In Lot's case, he offered them lodging. And it could be that in some of those cases, the one offering hospitality did not know exactly who they were talking to until after the fact, and then they realize who they were talking to, and they're amazed that they didn't die on the spot. 
In each of their cases, the person experienced a special blessing after having shown hospitality. God blessed them. And this verse is not promising us that if we start showing hospitality, all of a sudden we're going to get all these angelic visitors coming to us. But rather, this verse is pointing out the fact that God blesses those who love him enough to obey him by showing hospitality to brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's an encouragement to show hospitality. But I also think that there is a bit of a warning here. Because who do angels report back to? God. And so if we close our heart to someone, a brother in need, one of the least of these in need, do you think God is going to know about it? Certainly, he will know about it. We saw this with Jesus. However, we treat a brother or sister in Christ. Ultimately, we are treating Christ that way. Now, we read a verse like this and automatically our minds jump to circumstances like just some random dude coming off of the street and we have no idea who this guy is and he, you know, there's a a bulge under his jacket and we think, do I have to bring this guy into my house? This verse is not saying that we should not at all be discerning about who we allow into our homes for we have a responsibility to provide protection for our family to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. This is not a command to welcome every freeloader or false teacher that comes in off the street. In fact, when you come to 2 John, we are actually commanded not to show hospitality to false teachers because to do so would be to support them and enable them to spread their false teaching. So there are circumstances in which we ought not to open our home. But we should be quick to sacrificially love others who have a legitimate need. Too often we are too quick to close our hearts rather than to open our hearts. So if we have brotherly love, we will also be showing hospitable love. When we come to verse 3, we find that if we're showing brotherly love, there will also be another type of quality to the love that we are showing our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is sympathetic love. The preacher says in verse 3, Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. He says, Remember the prisoners. And this has long been the motto of choice for many prison ministries. And now I'm all for faithful prison ministries, but the preacher is not commanding us here to remember any and all prisoners. If you have a prison ministry, you are not necessarily obeying what this verse is talking about because the preacher here in this verse, he is calling on us to remember believers who have been imprisoned for their stand for Christ. That is who he is calling on us to remember. We've already seen this over in chapter 10 and verses 32 to 34 when he comments on their former manner of living after they became believers, how they had been faithful. 
He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And again, taking into account verse 1, he's talking about remembering believers who have been imprisoned for their stand for Christ. He's calling us to identify with those believers who have been imprisoned and mistreated because of their faithfulness. And when he commands us here in verse 3 to remember, he's calling on us to support these believers in any way we can, whether it be financially or prayerfully or personally visiting them, however we can. And it's this kind of tangible remembrance that blessed Paul so deeply. Paul, who was often finding himself in prison for his proclamation of the gospel. If you want to turn to Philippians 4, we see this appreciation that Paul expresses for how the believers were faithful to remember him. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. He's encouraging these Philippian believers. In verse 10 he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Philippians is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote this from prison, and he's saying to these believers, I rejoice that you, you tangibly remembered me. Verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And Paul craved this kind of, of support from the body of Christ, that they would remember him and care for him. One book over in Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, the very last verse of the chapter, Paul closes by saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my imprisonment. This is another prison epistle. Paul is calling on the believers to remember him, to stand with him in the gospel. And this is a sacrificial kind of love, just like brotherly love and hospitable love, sympathetic love. This remembering prisoners is a selfless kind of love. It can be hard in the case of hospitable love to remember or to, to love a stranger, but it can also be hard to remember a, a prisoner, an imprisoned brother or sister. We've often heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. We don't see them here. They may be languishing in prison somewhere, but we forget about them just because we don't see them. We're not reminded about them. We're often self-centered. We think about ourselves. And so if not, someone is not standing right in front of us, we might not remember them. But it's also hard to love in this way because of the stigma involved. If someone is imprisoned, 
for their stand for Christ, what does that say about the society that imprisoned them? That society has rejected Christ, which is why they've imprisoned the one who is following Christ. And if you identify yourself publicly with that person who's been imprisoned, what do you think your society is going to do to you if you stand with that prisoner? They're going to mistreat you as well. Think of Paul and all those who abandoned him during his imprisonment. They didn't leave him just because, oops, I forgot. They left him because the cost was too high to stand with him. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's last letter that we have, anyway, of writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he's saying that the time of his death is coming. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, we see him make this plea to Timothy. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Damas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And then drop down to verse 16 where Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. It costs something to stand with an imprisoned brother or sister in Christ, especially if that person is, is in the society that you are in. So we are being called in this verse, chapter Uh, 13 of Hebrews, verse 3, we are being exhorted to turn our back on selfishness and instead be willing to enter into another person's pain. That's why he says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. He's saying, put yourself in their shoes. We are family, remember. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. When one of us hurts, we should all hurt because we love one another. Now, none of us have been imprisoned for our faith yet here in this church, but the day may soon come when we will have to live out this verse very practically. There's a a man who went to the same seminary that I went to up in Canada, not North Korea, Canada, And he has spent these past two weeks in jail because he had the audacity to obey Christ by opening up his church and holding church with his whole congregation. And they took him away, chained with his wrists and also leg shackles as well, and they put him in jail and said, you can't come out until you commit to not preach anymore. And that's Canada. Canada. And we are close on their heels. And many of us may already be experiencing mistreatment for our stand for Christ. And we need to not be ashamed of one another. We need to not be ashamed of Christ but rather we need to stand alongside one another. And just because 
none of us have been imprisoned yet doesn't mean that there's no application in this verse for us now, today. There are some of our number who are not here this morning, and not because of imprisonment, but because of illness or weak health. They are out of sight, but let's be careful that they are not out of our minds. Let's make sure we are reaching out to them to encourage them in Christ through sending them a card, giving them a phone call, praying for them, anything they need. On the side table here, we have church directories that has names, phone numbers, emails, addresses. And I would invite you, I would urge you to please make good use of them. The preacher says, remember, and then at the end of the verse, he gives a reason why we ought to remember. He says, since you yourselves are also in the body. Commentators agree that, largely they agree that the preacher is saying that you have a mortal body, you have a vulnerable vulnerable body, just like your suffering brothers and sisters do. And you may not be experiencing isolation or mistreatment or suffering right now, but you soon will be. How would you like to be treated by your brothers and sisters in Christ when it is your turn to suffer? And are you treating your brothers and sisters that way right now? So if we are persevering in faith, we are going to be growing in brotherly love and we are going to possess hospitable love and we are going to be showing sympathetic love to one another. But there are many of us here who actually live with another brother or sister in Christ because we happen to be married to them. Your spouse is your closest neighbor, your closest brother or sister. And if we are striving to follow Christ by having brotherly love for one another, then we will be characterized by the type of marital love that the Bible is calling us to. He says in verse 4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This is where the rubber meets the road. I remember back when I was living at home, and par for the course for me, I had been a total jerk to my sisters, and my dad pulled me aside and he said that who you are to those closest to you is who you really are. I knew I wasn't going to get through this part. So forgive my weepiness. I'm probably going to be crying the whole time. But I think the scriptures bear this out. I can stand in this pulpit and I can talk with you on a Sunday in my Sunday suit and I can present myself to you a certain way. But if you want to know who I really am, you need to ask my wife. 
And if you're married and you, you want to know how far along the road of sanctification you really are, how Christ-like you really are, all you have to do is look at how you treat your spouse. And that's not the only measure of our sanctification, but it is an important one. And the preacher says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Throughout the history of mankind, people have twisted marriage into something far different than God designed for it to be. As a result, mankind has also often demeaned marriage. And this was no less true among the Jews in New Testament times. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 and verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, verse 3, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And I want you to notice what the disciples respond. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, It's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So what was the disciples' view of marriage? They seem to have bought into the idea that there were many legitimate reasons to get out of an unhappy marriage. I read one one rabbinical source that said if your if your spouse oversalted your food you could divorce them if you just woke up this one one morning and said oh i don't really like her anymore you could divorce your spouse they seem to have bought into this idea that marriage is something less than the ironclad covenant before god that it actually is And so when they heard the high standard that Jesus declared that there is extremely limited circumstances under which divorce may take place, 
They felt that it might be better not to marry at all rather than to be trapped with someone that they might no longer want to be with. And it's interesting that rather than rebuke them, in verse 11, Jesus seems to acknowledge the difficulty of marriage. He says, not everybody can accept what you just said. And he goes on to explain that singleness has its own challenges. So we have there in chapter 19 of Matthew an indication that marriage is hard. Why is it hard? It's hard because marriage involves two sinners, two selfish people who are living with each other 24-7. And when two selfish people each want different things, sparks are going to fly. When you have two idol worshipers living with each other, each one chasing different idols, marriage is going to feel like a nightmare. That's why in the secular world or the Christian psychology world, which really is not all that much better than the secular world, there is so much ink spilled about making sure you find someone who is compatible with you, which is really just saying make sure you find someone who worships the same idol that you worship so you can get along and have a reasonably pleasant marriage. It is not until each person in the marriage begins to deny himself or herself, it is not until they become united around the same purpose of living to the glory of God, it is not until each one has picked up their cross and they've started following Jesus together that then marriage becomes what God intended for it to become. It then becomes one of the greatest blessings a man or a woman can experience this side of heaven. So we need to resist treating marriage the way the world treats marriage. Instead, we need to honor marriage. We need to treat it as something precious, something extremely valuable, because strong marriages make for a strong church. Weak and broken marriages make for a weak and a broken church. He goes on in verse 4 to say that the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. The preacher here, he warns against the ultimate form of selfishness taking place in the marriage, and that is the defilement of the marriage bed. The marriage bed is the place where the greatest physical expression of the intimacy of the one flesh union of marriage takes place. And for a husband or a wife to give that intimacy to an individual who is not their spouse is to commit the greatest act of betrayal that you could possibly inflict upon your spouse. That is why Jesus, when describing the idolatry of his people, he said that they were adulterers because they had betrayed him who was their spiritual husband. If you give this kind of intimacy to someone else, you've just taken a hatchet 
and you've chopped away at the union that existed between you and your spouse. And it is only the grace of God and the forgiveness of the gospel that can restore that union. And the preacher warns here in this verse that if you give yourself over to that kind of selfishness and you do not repent, you can only expect to experience the just wrath of God. Brotherly love, hospitable love, sympathetic love, and marital love all require selflessness. And Jesus is our great example of how to love in this way. Jesus has loved us with a brotherly love by laying his life down for us in payment for our sins in order to make us a part of his family, his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus has loved us with a hospitable love. We see that in John 14, too, where Jesus says he has prepared a place for us in his Father's house, even though we were his enemies. And Jesus has loved us with a sympathetic love. As it says in Hebrews 2, 17, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And he has loved us with a marital love as the bridegroom of the church. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so in these four verses, all that the preacher is calling us to do is to imitate Christ, to follow Jesus in his love for others, to love others the way he's loved us. And after reading all of this, after studying these four verses, you may say to me, but Josh, I'm too selfish. I don't know how to possibly love this way. I've never been able to love anyone this way. You are right. You are too selfish. It's impossible for you to love this way. That is why we need God to save us and to give us a new heart and to forgive us for our lovelessness and to enable us to live for him. It's why Jesus came to live a perfectly loving life in your place so that he could go into the throne room of God and be your righteousness in your place. And if you would have him as your righteousness, what you need to do is turn from your sins and trust in him alone as your Lord and Savior. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead to purchase forgiveness and new life for all of his people and he is inviting you to be one of his people today. Will you surrender your life to him? And if you do, he will enable you to follow him and he will enable you to begin to love like he loves more and more every day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word has 
crushed us this morning, at least crushed me. Lord, I see how far short I fall of your glory, how short I fall of the love that you have called us to. And Lord, I thank you for Christ who lived a righteous life in my place, and he lived the perfectly loving life in the place of all of his children so that he could suffer and die in our place and pay for our lovelessness. And then he could go and stand before God in our place and his perfect loving life would be credited to our account if we would trust in him, surrender our lives to him, turn from our sin to him. And I thank you that when you save us, you begin to change us, to transform us from the loveless, selfish, self-seeking, self-worshipping people that we were. You begin to transform us into selfless people, people who want to live for Christ rather than self, people who are willing to lay themselves down for their brothers and sisters in Christ rather than to cling on to their own life with a death grip. Lord, may you continue to sanctify us. We thank you for granting to begin a good work in us, and we know that you will carry that work to completion, and it's by your grace. Lord, we stand in your grace. We have no other hope than to stand in your grace. Lord, we cannot merit heaven. We put our trust in Jesus who has merited it for us, Lord, and we trust in you that by your grace you can transform us and make us what you want us to be. May you continue to be doing that work in our lives day after day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.